0: All right, you comfortable? Yep. All right. Well, the story starts in the very beginning in a book called Genesis. God created Adam and Eve, the heavens and the earth, and everything that he created, he said- He calls it good. "Hmm, Very good. But it didn't always stay good because Adam and Eve ate the only fruit from the tree that God said would separate them from him forever. Oh, this is a sad story. Well, it's actually a very good story because the rest of the story is how God chose to love and rescue his very special people. Well, that's good. Yes. And God's special people were called the Israelites, and he was gonna save the world through them chose a special family among the Israelites from the line of Abraham. And God told Abraham, through your family, I'm going to save the world and your children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Wow. And God gave Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a son named Isaac. And God walked with Abraham. Wouldn't it be cool to walk with God? Yes. But unfortunately, Abraham's family ended up in slavery in a place called Egypt.
1: So how did Abraham's family end up as slaves in Egypt? To answer the question, we have to go back to Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph Joseph was sold into slavery by his very evil brothers who hated him, and he ended up in Egypt. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. For God raised Joseph up to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. It happened when Pharaoh had a dream he couldn't understand, and God used Joseph to explain the meaning of the dream. Joseph said to Pharaoh that a time was coming when a terrible famine would strike the earth and that someone needed to make sure that the Egyptians were prepared so they would have plenty of food. Well, Pharaoh couldn't think of anybody wiser than Joseph, so he said to Joseph, I'm going to make you second in charge. Joseph, in a sense, by God's grace, saved all of Egypt and the peoples who lived around, including his own family, which he hadn't seen for a very long time. In gratitude, Pharaoh said, why don't you move your family down here? And that's what happened. Abraham's family moved down to Egypt and they quickly multiplied to the point that there were more of them than there were Egyptians. More time went by and a new Pharaoh came to power and this Pharaoh did not remember Joseph. He was afraid of the people and he enslaved them. He told the Egyptians, make sure that you take any newborn infant male that's a Hebrew boy and throw him in the Nile to be eaten by crocodiles or to drown. About the same time, there was a woman by the name of Jochebed. She had a little baby boy. She put him in a watertight basket, hid him in the Nile. Well, Pharaoh's daughter came down to take a bath. When she did, she saw the basket. She had the basket brought to her. And when they gave her the basket, while she picked it up and looked inside, and there was this little baby boy. She felt sorry for him and adopted him and gave him the name of Moses. Well, Moses grew up as a prince in Pharaoh's palace. And for 40 years, he was highly educated and treated very well. But he noticed that his own people, the Israelites, were treated terribly cruelly. After watching this for 40 years, one day he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he couldn't take it any longer. So he went and in his anger killed the Egyptian, buried the evidence in the ground, but soon word got out what Moses had done, and he fled for his life. He fled into what is known as the wilderness of Midian, and there he traded out his royal robes for the simple and smelly clothes of a shepherd. For the next 40 years, Moses would learn to lead sheep. One day, when he was in the wilderness, he saw a bush that was burning, but it didn't seem to stop burning. Out of curiosity, he turned and went to see what was going on. God spoke to him out of that bush, and God said to him, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, so he went to the palace But when Pharaoh heard him, Pharaoh snarled at him. Pharaoh laughed at Moses and laughed at God. He wasn't gonna let the people go. Instead, he more cruelly treated the people. The people cried out to Moses. Moses cried out to God, this plan isn't working very well. Well, God had made a promise and Pharaoh wasn't gonna stop him. God was going to redeem his people out of slavery. He would break the chains of slavery and set them free. God began to judge Pharaoh. And in judgment, God sent on Pharaoh many different plagues. He sent a plague of frogs, a plague of flies and gnats. God killed the livestock. He sent boils and then hail storms. And lightning fell upon Egypt, followed by locusts that ate all the vegetation and darkness. Pharaoh tried to resist God, but try as he might, he could not stop the power of God, for God's power was greater than Pharaoh's. And then God prepared to bring the 10th and final plague. God told Moses to tell the children of Israel that on a certain night they should gather in their homes, for the angel of death would pass over all of Egypt, and the firstborn would die. From the greatest to the least, their families would be affected. But the Israelites were to gather in their homes. They were to kill a one-year-old lamb or a young goat, smear the blood on the door frames, eat a specific and hastily put-together meal, and be prepared to leave Egypt. For the promised land Well that night came And indeed the angel of death Passed over Egypt And every firstborn's life was taken Even the life of Pharaoh's eldest child Pharaoh relented He said to Moses You and your people can go And as Moses and the people left The Egyptians cheered They were so happy to see them go. In fact, they gave them all kinds of gifts. They were so happy that the Israelites were finally leaving. The Israelites began their journey through the desert and came to the Red Sea. But Pharaoh had a change of heart. He became angry, filled with pride. He was not going to lose his slave force, so he sent 600 charioteers to pursue the Israelites and bring them back. When the Israelites saw the Egyptians coming, they cried out to Moses, who cried out to God, who said, raise your staff over the sea. And all night long, the wind blew and separated the waters, creating a dry seabed for the Israelites to pass over. As the Israelites passed over, Pharaoh's charioteers came into the dry bed. God confused them, and then God covered them with the water and swept them away. Meanwhile, on the other side, Moses and the children of Israel sang a song of triumph and glory to God for rescuing them. Now began the great journey through the wilderness, a difficult journey that God intended to use to expose what was really in the hearts of his people, Israel. As they began the journey, their hearts were exposed, complaining and bitterness, saying it was so much better in Egypt. But Moses persevered. He took them to the oasis of God's presence. It was not easy leading the children of Israel, for indeed they were sinful and they complained most of the way. But perhaps when they came to the mountain of God, they would change their attitude. For God came down in glory, and Moses went up, and God formed a covenant with Moses and the people. God said, I will bless you if you will obey me. God told the Israelites the terms of the covenant, and they said that they would obey God and follow his ways. So God gave them very specific instructions, including what we think of as the Ten Commandments was God's intention that his people would obey, and out of the obedience of his people, God was going to raise them up, really, as a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests through whom the promise would be revealed and all the nations of the world would be blessed. The only thing they had to do was to obey God. Certain things they must do and certain things they must never do. But Israel did not keep its part of the covenant. She disobeyed God. To the point that God finally said, I'm not going to let you into the wilderness and he, or into the promised land. And he forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that rebellious generation died off. Even Moses disobeyed God. When he should have given glory to God, he took glory to himself. God let him see the promised land, but God did not let him enter in. Before he died, God appointed his replacement, man by the name of Joshua, Moses' right-hand man. Moses instructed Joshua, and then Moses died. And God spoke to Joshua and said, I will be with you as I was with Moses. No one shall stand against you, Joshua. Joshua gathered strength and courage from the words of God. And he led the new generation into the promised land. They passed through the Jordan River, which God separated and dried up just like he did the Red Sea. And the first city they came to was a city called Jericho, a well-fortified city. God said, march around this city for six days in silence, once a day. On the seventh day, march around six times in silence. But on the seventh day, blow the horns and give a shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. And indeed, the walls came tumbling down, and the people conquered Jericho. It was a process that would be repeated over and over again as they conquered one city after another. Now when Israel went into the Promised Land, 12 tribes went in, but only nine tribes stayed. The other three settled on the other side of the Jordan. God commanded his people to conquer the land and to purge the land of the Canaanites, lest they become a trap to the Israelites. For the Canaanites were an evil and wicked people who worshiped all kinds of false gods and idols. Their behavior was detestable. These people lived very immoral, and corrupt lives. They even sacrificed their children to false gods. Israel was to be a holy people, but they compromised, and they became just like the Canaanite people themselves and disobeyed God, and it grieved the heart of God. It seemed like whatever God told his people to do, they refused, and whatever God said don't do, they did it. And what happened was they fell into a terrible cycle of sin. The cycle went like this. They would worship false gods, and then after sinning, God would allow their enemies to oppress them. After oppression, then the people would cry out in repentance. God would send them a deliverer, a judge, who would give them victory, leading them into a period of peace, only to be followed By sinning once again. During this time, when the people cried out, God would give them a judge. I want to tell you about one judge in particular. This judge was brought to power when Israel had disobeyed God and God oppressed them through their enemies, the Midianites. For seven years, the Midianites troubled the Israelites. In the harvest season, they would come and consume the crops and burn them and steal all their animals. The Israelites would flee into the mountains. The neighborhood bullies just kept doing this year after year after year until the people cried out to God. And God raised up a man by the name of Gideon. Gideon was used by God to conquer the Midianites. At first, Gideon didn't want to do it, but God convinced him by demonstration of power. And with only 300 men, Gideon defeated by God's strength, the Midianites. Now, while the Midianites were fleeing, those who were left, Gideon and his small army pursued them, and they stopped at two Israelite towns. They asked for refreshments and resupplies, but the two Israelite towns refused to help them, citing the fact they hadn't killed the kings of Midian yet, and if they get away and come back in power and strength, while the cities that helped Gideon would receive the most severest punishment. This made Gideon angry. He vowed that after he killed those kings, he would come back and get even with them. Well, he did kill the Midianite kings. And when he came back, he held true to his words. He tortured the men from one city and killed all the men from the other Israelite city. The people said, Gideon, we want you and we want your children to rule us as our kings. Gideon said, no, the Lord will be your king. That was the last wise and godly thing that Gideon ever said. Because in his next breath, he said, but what I will do is I'll take payment for my work. And the people brought to him the equivalent of 43 pounds of gold. And Gideon took that gold, and he fashioned an ephod. You say, what is an ephod? An ephod was a vestment that the high priest would wear. On it were two stones, the Urim and Thummim, that God sometimes used to give discernment about decisions that they needed to make in order to honor him and please him. It was kept in Shiloh with the tabernacle where the high priest was. But Gideon took it and had it fashioned out of gold and took it to his hometown of Ophrah. And there he had it set up. And it says in the book of Judges chapter eight that the people prostituted themselves and began to actually worship the golden ephod, much like their ancestors did when they worshiped the golden calf. It was disgusting. And then comes One of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible, Judges chapter 8 verse 34 says, Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Now, imagine that with me this weekend, imagine that the children of God who've experienced the miraculous power and deliverance of God have totally forgotten about him. Imagine that Gideon himself has no longer led them to God but is now leading them away from God. What causes them to forget about God? What causes Gideon to behave this way? A violation of the second principle from our story, how Christmas came to be. Do you remember the first principle? We learned it last weekend. Abraham taught it to us. That is faith in the promises of God. Whether we're at Loring Park or Dine or in prayer or you're watching online, we want to be a people who have faith in the promises of God. The second principle, though, is this. We must Utterly depend on the power of God. We must utterly depend on the power of God. Without that, there wouldn't be Christmas. And I'll tell you why. Say, so, well, what do you mean when you say utterly depend on the power of God? It's a good question. Let's define that for a moment. To utterly depend on the power of God means, first of all, to realize how utterly powerless. I am, and you are before God. Go back and read Judges 6, 7, and 8 on your own, and you'll discover that when God comes to Gideon, the angel of the Lord, and greets him, the angel of the Lord says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Go and deliver your people. And Gideon's initial response was basically, Are you talking to me? I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. He said to the angel of the Lord, which we believe was Christ himself in form, he says to him, my clan is the least in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. It's like, if you're looking for a Moses, I'm no (laughs) mo. I'm not your guy. You know, when I read that, I thought about another angel, Gabriel who came to a teenage girl and said to her, "'Greetings, highly favored one, the Lord is with you.'" And it says in Luke chapter 1, about verse 29, that she was very troubled by the manner or by the greeting that was given to her. She was more troubled by, for being called highly favored than she was an angel standing in front of her. Really, it's like, who, me? I am I'm a simple teenage virgin girl. I am a hillbilly living up in the, in the, in the hills of Nazareth, a no name from nowhere. Remember when one of the disciples of Jesus, before he met Jesus, heard about Jesus and heard that he came from Nazareth, said, can anything good come out of that hick town? I'm really paraphrasing there. <laughs> really? Now, what is it that Gideon and Mary and so many others that God used so powerfully have in common in the Bible? The answer to the question is, they were very aware of how utterly powerless and weak they were. And when God got a hold of somebody like the Apostle Paul, who had a lot of pride, <laughs> who had a lot of intellect, a lot of strength, you know what God did with somebody like Paul? God broke them till they discovered their powerlessness. Remember the words of Paul when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. In my brokenness, God's strength can be seen. I have a question I want to ask you to all of our campuses. You ready for this question? If God said, I want to use you, what would you offer him to use in your life? What would you say? Okay, God, here, use this. If you can think of anything that you would offer him and to say, okay, God, here, use this, then you are not utterly powerless. Powerless. See, that wasn't very fair, but it's very true. As long as we think we have something to contribute, something that God can use, well, there's a little bit of pride involved in that. Because what we're talking about here is getting to the point where we just realize I have nothing. I absolutely have nothing. My money, my gifts, my talents, my abilities are chaff in the wind. It's Nothing. I'm just totally unworthy of being used by God. It's hard in our culture. Our culture that's based on lots of independence and lots of pride. It's hard for us to feel useless because it's all about being useful. But God doesn't need anything we have to offer him, which leads us to a second thought about this whole issue of being Utterly powerless, And that is recognizing that our gifts, our abilities, our financial resources, our achievements can easily become stumbling blocks to experiencing the reality of God's presence, the reality of God's power. The very things I have, in other words, personally, internally, can become a stumbling block to realizing God's power at work in me and through me. When God comes to Gideon and finally convinces him to go and attack the Midianites, he amasses an army of 32,000 men, and God says to him, that is too many people. God takes the number all the way down to the ridiculous number of 300. At 300, they are no match whatsoever for the Midianites, at all. And God tells him why he reduces the number. God says to him, I only want you to take 300, Gideon, because if you take everybody, I know what the people will do. They will boast that they were able to conquer the Midianites in their own strength. In essence, what they'll say, to paraphrase an oftentimes used phrase these days, I got this. We got this. And God says, I want you guys to recognize you don't, and this is bad English, but you'll forgive me. You ain't got nothing. You don't have this. I've got this, I'm God. And when you go back and read that story, when they surround the Midianite camp, they have these clay pots, torches, they crash the clay pots, they have the torches out, they shout, and the Midianites get so upset, they literally kill each other. And a handful, in essence, escape. Gideon pursues them and conquers them. God doesn't need our resources, in order to do what he chooses to do. We live in a culture today that is a, I got this kind of culture. I mean, we've got science, we've got technology, we've got money, the economy, we've got the military, we've got government. That's a little shaky sometimes. We've got muscles, we've got looks, we've got brawn, we've got abilities, we got this We got this, and it's really hard. It's really hard to be an authentic church in a culture like that, because that I got this mindset can quickly and easily creep into the church of Jesus Christ, so that we say, "God, we've got this," and we lead the church like we lead our secular institutions and organizations. We lead it by our own proudness, by our own wisdom, by our own abilities, by our own strategicness. You know, I've got this all figured out. And we either expand to our capabilities or we retain to our capabilities, but we keep it under our control, what we're able to do, and God becomes our mascot. We sing about him, we preach about him, we talk about him, but honestly, honestly, we don't need him. We've got this. And no wonder the church perhaps in America is in the situation it's in today is we really don't know what it means to depend on God. You say, well, what does it mean then to depend on God? How, how do I, how do I hold on to my utter powerlessness so I can experience the strength and the power of God himself? You have to know, you don't have to look any further than Jesus for the answer. I want you to think about Jesus with me for just a moment. John tells us that in the beginning, Jesus was. He was with God. He was God. He is God. Yet Paul says in Philippians 2 that he gave up his prerogative as as God. He gave up his glorious place, and he took on human flesh, he says, and he became like a slave. He became so vulnerable in the manger. I mean, imagine that. I can't wrap my mind around almighty God who created everything. Hebrews tells us he created everything that there is, becomes one of us like a slave. And in John chapter 5, at about verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing. I can do nothing. I depend entirely on my Father to do anything. In other words... Jesus was very aware of his utter powerlessness. Were you aware of that? Did you know that Jesus said he could do nothing? But then if you keep watching the life of Jesus, you discover a second principle at work in his life, that in his powerlessness, He sought to do everything that he did to glorify his father. So as the father provided him strength, strength to speak wisdom, truth, strength to heal and do miracles, Jesus turned all those miracles right back around, and he glorified his father in heaven. I just want to read you one verse found over in John chapter 8, verse 54. So Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. But what I do is I live to glorify my Father. And watch this. He says in John chapter 17, and then the Father glorifies the Son. Jesus had it right, didn't he? He took everything that God gave him. And he turned it right back around and used it to bring glory and praise and honor to God. That's how we keep ourselves out of pride. That's how we keep ourselves out of trouble. See what Gideon did is he he took the victory that God gave him and used it for his own benefit and his own glory. The people took the victory for granted and they soon forgot about God. When I focus on myself, when I focus on my own abilities, when I focus on what I can accomplish, when I don't need God to do life, I forget about God. I may talk about God, sing about God. I may even know a lot about God, but in essence, I have forgotten about God because you can't find God at work in my life because he has no room to work in my life. I only trust myself. I don't trust him. Jesus trusted his father completely and then used everything that his father gave him to glorify the father. Whatever gifts, whatever talents, whatever abilities you have, whatever money you have, whatever resources you have, as we think about our church, as we think about these buildings, as we think about our ministries, all of that is God-given. Do you believe that? Everything you have personally is God-given. Given, It is given to you to turn around and give it back to God by glorifying him. And as long as we live that way, glorifying the giver and not the gifts, as long as we live that way, then we become a conduit, a channel, if you will, for the very power, the raw power of God himself, which takes us to one final thought about Jesus, and that is that Jesus lived with one purpose in mind, And that was to deliver us from sin and death. That was his purpose. Gideon's purpose deliver the people from their enemies. Mary's purpose deliver the Savior who would deliver us from sin and death. What's your purpose? What's my purpose? in this world, in this life. As we approach the Christmas season and think about Jesus being born in the manger, he came to redeem us. What's your purpose right now? What's the purpose of Wooddale Church? It is to bring the message of redemption to a lost world. It is to point people by our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our resources, to a God who loves them, who died for them, who rose again, who offers eternal life and promises someday that we will be with him forever and ever. How about you? As you think about the Christmas season, why are you here? What is life about for you? Do you feel utterly powerless to do the will, and the work of God? I hope so. Oh, I hope so. Do we as a church feel utterly powerless to change the Twin Cities? I really hope so. I hope you can look at your bank account. I hope you can look at your home. I hope you can look at your family. I hope you can look at everything you have and just go, huh, nothing. God, I have nothing to offer you. So that God can then take what he has given you and use it for his own glory. Because once I admit I have nothing, I am nothing, then God can use me, and he can use you, and he can use us. And then we live on purpose for him. And he's glorified in our midst. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this Christmas season, we ask you to help us be men and women, the students of great faith, O oh God, who trusts you and trust you alone. We ask you, O oh God, to help us sense our powerlessness so that we can be totally open to your great power and strength. And we ask you, O oh God, to move in us and to work through us accomplish your perfect will God if you can use a Mary just a plain old ordinary Mary to birth the Savior into the world what can you do with us as we come to the communion table it is a powerful picture Reminding us of why Christ came to this world in the first place, to save you and me. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us, and the cup, his blood that was shed for you and for me. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are saying to God, I remember you. I remember what you did for me. And I'll never forget you, O God. This reminds me how powerless I am how powerful you are that you could conquer sin and death. None of us deserve this. None of us can earn this. It's a beautiful free meal that God gives to us. And in a few moments when our service come down, you just reach in and you take those two little cups. One has a little wafer of bread and the other has a juice in it. I want you on your own to take it. but I'm going to ask you to do this before you take it. I'm going to ask you silently to just confess to God your powerlessness. To humble yourself. And ask him to do in you and through you what only he alone can do. Ask him to show his strength in you and through you. That we might truly experience the presence and power of God. The bread represents his body, which was given for us. Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. The cup represents his blood that was shed for us. Jesus said, This cup's the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. going to do our compassion offering which we normally do after we have communion we're going to do that instead during our Christmas Eve services we'll have a regular tithing and offerings but we will also uh, do our compassion offering and this year once again our compassion offering is going to go towards helping those who truly cannot help themselves we're gonna do two specific things one is we're going to continue with the uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan that we've been helping out with food and medicine, clothing, but we're going to we're gonna make a little bit of a turn with that. We're going to now help them start some businesses so they can help themselves. This will keep them, especially their young women, out of the sex trade and slavery, which is happening there now. We're also gonna work with our partners in Kolkata Free Set we want to continue to help them get girls off the street It is our prayer and our desire that no girl would ever have to be sold into sex trade and though we can't solve the entire problem if we can take a chunk out of it in those two places it truly honors and glorifies God so I just want you to keep that in mind be praying about that we'll tell you more as we get closer to our Christmas Eve services Next weekend, we will continue with the story how Christmas came to be and we'll look at a third principle. I hope you'll be here for that and uh, join us and bring a friend uh, as well. Shall we all stand together? It's great to see you out tonight. Do you love God? Yes. Do you love God even though he considers you to be really powerless? Do you still love him? That's really hard for us sometimes, isn't it? We like to think ourselves as pretty self-sufficient, but God says, I can't use you till you realize how weak you are. And so if you're feeling pretty weak tonight, you got a good place to start. God bless you this Christmas season. If you'd like a pastor, pray with Pastor Tarman. will be here at the front, as well as other prayer partners. You're dismissed.